You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Accounted For. Thanks again for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by OMD Ventures, my platform focused on everything human capital investing. Check out weekly articles on redefining the status quo and work and life, as well as my daily learnings on becoming healthy, wealthy, and wise at oldmandan.com. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter that will provide you with the weekly updates of all the new material. And also help out the podcast, as well as a friend you love, by telling that friend this week about Accounted For and why that person should listen to the podcast itself and how it'll help their own career journey. Also, what would really help me to improve the podcast and the overall OMD Ventures platform is to really learn who you, my listeners, are. I made a survey that I would really appreciate if you would fill out. It should take no more than five minutes and you can remain anonymous. And so don't worry, I won't, I won't come after you <laughs> if you do the survey. There's no way for me to know if who you really are. And so please make the time to head on over to oldmandan.com slash podcast with an S to fill out the survey link. I'll also link everything on the show notes description as well. So no need to memorize any of that. And so today's interview is with Jason Zan, the fractional CFO of four startup companies. So he's the CFO of four companies at the same time. Jason has had more than close to like two decades worth of experience in Toronto's tech ecosystem, starting in the hot 90s period when he started a website agency company to then eventually starting a global VoIP company. VoIP, for people who are not familiar, is voice over internet protocol. And so it was practically the way that people made, or one of the ways that people made long distance phone calls using the internet. You know, like how we have FaceTime and um, like Facebook video chat now. Yeah, so back in the day, just even a couple decades ago, it was much harder to do that kind of stuff and more expensive too. And in between his entrepreneurial ventures, Jason, and I quote him when he says this, he ping-ponged from being an early style, early stage venture capital investor to being the CFO of early stage startups. So he just constantly just went back and forth from doing that while he was also starting companies in the meantime. And despite being a CFO, he does not have an accounting background, and this is something he brought up when I first reached out to him. And we talk about how the CFO role is evolving, and it's not just for the traditional accountant anymore. We also talk about entrepreneurship, how raising money isn't success, what the three duties of the CEO actually are from his experience being an investor, and how after his third foray into venture capital, he finally was able to figure out that he wanted to be a CFO and why, uh, and what the reason behind all that was, like what really was the big difference between his desire to be an investor versus an actual operator inside a startup itself. This was really, I think, a really fun journey where uh, Jason just shares his kind of wisdom, being on the both sides of being an operator and investor constantly as the landscape is changing. And so I had a lot of fun talking to Jason about that. And I really hope you find as much value out of this as I did as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jason Zan. Hey everyone, welcome to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, I have Jason Zan. Hey Jason, thanks hey. for having the podcast. Nice to meet you. 
Jason is a fractional CFO of close to, I think, five startups, right? And uh, four right now, yes. Four right now. Yeah. Okay. So for the listen, what are the four uh, startups that you're currently the fractional CFO? Um, one is a video content syndication platform. Another one's enterprise-grade data collaboration platform. Another one is a, a cannabis media property. And the final one is a platform uh, for financial advisors. Gotcha. And for the listeners who may not be familiar with the term CFO, it's Chief Financial Officer. And for you, Jason, how would you define, uh, in your own definition, what a CFO is? And do you think it's really different from what people might perceive it to be? So, so my definition, at least in my world, um, I define it as a person that helps the founders or the CEO get a forward-looking view on their company, right? So how do I predict the future um, and so that I can plan for that future, right? Uh, but in order to do that, you actually have to have visibility into the present and into the past. So the two pieces are, number one, sort of forward-looking, looking to the future, and then defining and putting in all the infrastructure so that you have visibility into your current state and your past. That's what I def- define a, a CFO as. Got it. Yeah, I think, I don't know I don't know how the market might view it, but I remember back in school when we talked about CFO, if you just imagine someone who's just in charge of everything numbers related in a big company. Yeah, and I think, I think that's, that's, that's true in a lot of cases, right? Because, I mean, obviously with scale, you've got a lot of data, right? And you've got to figure out how to actually sort of report on that data in a, in a format that allows you to actually understand it and then to be able to actually analyze the data to actually get reasonable information out, out of it so that you can, you know, point your company in the right direction. Um, I, I think, though, historically, uh, the focus of a lot of CFOs, or when, they, when people think about CFOs, is they, they think of like an accountant who's sitting there and just reporting on the numbers. And, uh, and, and that's true, right? That's very, very important. And historically, it's been about accuracy, right? Making sure numbers are either compliant to GAAP or FRIS or whatever else, and, and making sure the numbers are accurate. But what I'm seeing right now is that as we progress forward, specifically in technology companies, you know, and almost all companies, almost all companies are becoming data-driven, right? So having visibility into that data above and beyond the product is, is very important, and that's the data of the business. And I think that's where sort of that CFO role is evolving to. Yeah, I remember when I first reached out to you to uh, chat, you immediately responded back with, by the way, I'm not an accountant. I don't have an accounting designation. Do you still want to talk to me? And I said, yes, that's exactly why I want to talk to you. Do you get that a lot where people ask, like, do you have an accounting designation when you tell them you're a CFO? Yeah, yeah. I mean, most people do. They say, oh, when the first thing they say is, are you a CA, CPA, CMA? And I say, no, I'm not, actually. Uh, my background, actually, in terms of my, my understanding of accounting and everything else was as, a, as an operator myself. So I started up two startups myself and also as a venture capitalist. And um, it, it gives you a different view. I mean, you have to understand the financials and understand what each line item means and what the balance sheet means, cash flow and all the items. But the purpose is not so much about the assumption is that it's accurate, right? And the purpose is to figure out, okay, what can I learn from the past with these numbers so that I can better manage my business in the future, right? 
And I, I think historically, um, the focus has been, you know, ah, all this guy is just, a, this guy is just to make sure this, this uh, CFO or VP of finance or accountants is just focused completely on accuracy and making sure that the financials, whatever numbers are accurate to a specific um, I'll call it definition, standardized definition, as I said, whether, whether it's GAP or IFRS, whatever, whatever else it is. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when I was looking through your uh, profile, you know, you've had more than 20 years of experience in the startup realm. And even so you kind of started off in like the 1990s when startup was, tech was hot and then all the way continuous even after the bubble burst even t- until now. Did, did you always know you wanted to go into that startup world? Like how did that happen? Were you from like an entrepreneurial family where you just saw it and said, okay, that's the world that I'm going to be part of? No, actually, actually, you know what? It's it's kind of funny. So I went to school for business. I went, I did my uh, undergrad at Western, and it was a business degree. So I, I did know that I, I sort of wanted to get into in, into business, but I didn't know what I really wanted to do. And my first entry into the business world was actually in packaged goods. So I, I worked for uh, Procter and Gamble for a while, and then, you know, I came to realize that you know, moving. Uh, you know, the, the amount of share ownership of Tide by 0.5% didn't really excite me, right? And and it wasn't really what I was interested in. And then I'd always been interested in computers and technology growing up. Um, you know, I sort of programmed as a kid for fun and was into tech. And um, and then about the time that I was, I graduated and I come out of school, um, this was in the mid-90s, the internet bubble just started to boom. It got pretty hot then, right? Yeah, it was just as right the point when there was basically Netscape 1.1. And I said, whoa, what is this? This is super, super cool, right? And um, and then so I decided, hey, you know what? I just, uh, although, although Procter & Gamble was an amazing experience, it, it didn't, I didn't have that much of a passion for it. And I decided, well, you know what I really want to get into is technology and this looks super, super cool. So I joined up with a, a small professional services firm that basically built websites for banks, financial institutions at that time. And that's how I got my entry into the internet world. And was that was that company um, imoney.com? Was that no, that, that was a company called Quadrivision. Oh, okay, that yeah. was the Quadrivision. Yeah. Got it. And when during that time when you were... You know, Choosing, do I go back to this Procter Gamble world or do I follow this tech world? Was that was that a very popular decision back then amongst your peers as well, or were you still the outlier to see that and say, "I'm going to jump on this"? Yeah, I think I think I was still well, very much the outlier. I mean, that point in time was like Netscape 1.1. Like most people didn't even know what the internet was, right? So this is time of Telnet, Gopher, and like, like a lot of stuff that like <laughs> the, the current model of, of the internet didn't didn't really exist. Mm-hmm. So, I think there are individuals that said they wanted to start their own businesses, but um, the internet wasn't really a space that was well known at that time. And you continued on with um, this technology world. So you you were at Crowdvision, and then you moved over to that's when you went to like iMoney.com. Is that yeah? So then I, then I left and I started my own professional services firm. So uh, what I found the, the the big gap at that point in time is that. There are a lot of companies are that were, were producing um, websites that were purely for marketing. So it was about the pictures and you know the, the content and the words, right? 
and uh, there was a that's where space was, was burgeoning right but a lot of these companies didn't have that strong of a skill set or a domain expertise in building out functional websites right calculators you know you know what we take for granted now right so I had said okay you know I did this I had to build a whole bunch of uh, websites like Comerica's website BMW.ca's website they're like the first versions of it and I said hey you know what I'm gonna go off and start my own first business right so I decided to create my first my own uh, web building business right that focused specifically on functionality so our customers were other websites or other agencies who had clients you know and they had although they were focused on the vision like the visuals and you know the, the content and then whenever they needed like any functionality they would subcontract to us, and then we would build that those pieces out. Was that when you used like your code, your programming skills from back uh, before like, university to actually start building a website? Yeah, yeah, basically. So, so that that was back at that point in time, and it was it was a lot. It was a very very different world back then. Yeah, yeah, and and so the bubble pops, and then you then pivot into going to the venture world. It seems like with Rogers. Yeah, yeah, but what actually happened was 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 still during during the bubble. I don't, I won't call it the bubble. I'll, I'll call it the the gold rush. Got it. Got it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll call yeah. it the gold rush. Yeah. And uh, like at that point in time, I think every single large media property out there, a large company who was in media, saying, "Oh man, this is the way of the future," or at least I'm, I'm seeing all these incremental increases in valuations. All these internet companies, I got to be there, right? So, so Rogers is one of the companies that had um, decided, "Hey, you know." We as a media company, we need to be in the space, right? So they had created Rogers uh, Interactive Media or Internet Media. And um, they were looking for people to, 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 to help grow this sort of sector. They, like, you know, at that point, no one knows what they're doing. You know, they're, they're trying to figure this all this out. And it was either, do I build a property? Do I partner? Do I buy? What do I do, right? And, and Rogers at that time was saying, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's see what we can do between all three of these items, right? So the fact of the matter was that by, by this time, there weren't that many people uh, out there that had a lot, had any, any real significant experience in terms of actually being able to build up websites and actually the, the business models around around these elements, right? And just because I got into it early, I, I had a bit more experience than everybody else. So I was brought on to assist not only with um, the development of the business models, uh, the, of um, their version of the incubator back back at that point in time, but also to help with um, evaluating investing in potential investments in the internet world because the uh, you know obviously the the valuations that opportunity when, when that space was going up so much. And we, I think you were still when you were in Rogers during your tenure, the gold rush was the gold rush practically kind of dwindled down and in like early two thousands. And how, how, what was the kind of in investing sentiment like at that point in the environment? Oh, it was tough. I mean, I mean, it was very, very tough at that point in time. I mean, like, um, like a lot of, I gained a lot of experience in terms of how to, how to deal with tough situations, right? I mean, when things aren't going that well and things are flying through, you have to, you have to make some tough decisions and you have to, you know, restructure your investment deals try to sell in secondaries, have to do a whole bunch of other things, right? Which which aren't that fun, right? Whereas trying to like refocus on and then the deals that, you know, the, 
that will make it through that sort of trough, right? And and to to push down in these individuals, unfortunately, and get them to really really bunker down and 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 cost cut and focus on the core until you can sort of get out of that 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 bottom of that J curve. And do, you, do is there like a particular uh, tough decision like that comes to mind, like an example? Yeah, the simplest is your burn is too high. You got to cut it in half or more, right? And and you know, I mean, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, mo- most of the most of the burn in tech companies is is, is employees, right? And you know, when you're starting up somebody, you get close to these individuals, and especially with a smaller organization, you know everybody by name. So having to be the CEO or that the founding team and say, go to half these people and say, I'm sorry, but you know what? The market has turned or the situation has turned and we're going to have to cut our costs is a very, very difficult thing, you know? And d- despite that difficult time frame, you then went off again to start your own company. Uh, and that this time it was the kind of voice over internet protocol, VoIP right. company. What made you want to do that despite this kind of difficult environment you were in? Um, I, th- I think, you know, I, I, when I, when I did my, I think it was really ego, honestly, you know what I am saying? And when I, when I, when I created my first company, it was a professional services firm, right? So straightforward model, you know, you sell your time, your knowledge, uh, for a rate and then you get paid for it. Right. And hopefully, you know, you get known for doing a good job and you get more clients and the existing clients like you and continue to give you work. Um, but I guess in my mind, I thought, oh, this isn't a real startup, like this is just, you know, professional services. It's like this is just like consulting, right? I thought, you know what? I got to build a product. You know, I've got to get a real startup, and a real startup is something that where you build a product and you get funded, and you know, and you get X million dollars of VC money, and then you grow it and you become a multi-billionaire, right? <laughs> that that was my impression. So so that's why I thought, you know, I got to do this again, and this time do it right. You know, <laughs> and I put that in quotes, you know, <laughs> and, and that's why I started the second company. And it was basically um, a mobile VoIP application for future phones. So this was for the mid 2000s. And um, and the whole concept was that at that point in time, uh, you know, data was still very, very expensive. This is prior to 3G. It was edge. And we thought, and, and LD, long distance, was actually very expensive, right? And the model of most people, that there was a huge market for calling cards at that point in time because of LD. So we said, well, could we do this? Could we actually take that calling card and turn it into an application that you could download to your future phone? So what would then happen is that the application would then import in all, all your uh, contacts, right? And um, um, it would allow you to, to basically make a call, choose whoever, I say, like, let me call, I'm calling you, I I click your name, click call, and instead of using the data channel to to actually initiate the call, I'd actually initiate it over the voice channel, and there'd be a server, let's say you were in China and I was in Toronto, there'd be a server in China, which call you locally, and there'd be a server for me in Toronto calling me locally, so for each each of us would be a local call, but it was actually a long-distance call. So the idea that that was the fundamental premise, and then all the items that were always a pain in the ass with a calling card, which is having to dial all these digits and putting the pin code and, you know, topping it up, would all be done in the app, right? So, so that, that was the primary premise of uh, that startup. 
Got it. And I'm not too familiar with that world. I, so my father used to be in a company that did long distance cards, uh-huh. and um, I've briefly looked at some companies that did, you know, VoIP services when I was an investor. But it it seems like from what you explained to me that it might have. Like, did you did you need to actually like, build out certain like servers and stuff to actually be able to create this kind of local um, interfacing? No, system? no. So so the way that business works is that you actually have individuals that optimize point to point point-to-point connections across across data, right? So so there are companies out there that may have a, a point of service uh, maybe in, in, in China and then a point of service in Toronto and then they'll sell you uh, that 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 link for a fixed fee of whatever, two cents a minute or whatever else, right? Uh, you, your job as, as, the, as the person that's creating the app is to pick and choose these wholesalers of what's the best rate and then put it all together so that, you know what, when someone initiates it, you just... You just uh, you just choose the best rates routes for those 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 calls, right? So, so there is this whole wholesale model in, in that space, and obviously it's tied to volume, or you know, and some people have better deals because you know of different suppliers, different areas. So we didn't have to build that piece, but it it was almost like a but we still had to find and optimize the legs for each element. Got it. And so how how did that do? Did you get that big venture funding? No, well, you know what I mean. We we got to we got to uh, about a million downloads in six months, wow. which is pretty amazing. I mean, and it was all basically based on uh, referral freemium model. So the idea was, you know what? Every time you refer someone, you know they will get a dollars in free free long distance, and we would and you as a person referring them would get a dollar in free long distance. And you know what? You know a North American call like from Toronto. To, to or Canada to US would cost you two cents. So that's that's pretty significant in terms of time, right? And maybe an international call would cost you ten cents or five cents. It depends on the location, right? And that's how we actually drove the that's how we drove sort of the uh, the the volume to, to get to a million downloads. And this is all happening in Toronto. Well there's actually you know what it was all actually most most of our downloads were in, in Europe. Uh, in, in Europe and uh, and secondary countries like the Philippines and everything else. So in Europe at that point in time, uh, there's a lot of regulation around point-to-point calls between countries. So you, you may, even though countries are beside you, they cost you a boatload, right? So, so, so there is this natural friction there, which to solve. And then there is this whole market where, you know, you have a lot of uh, migrant workers and they're calling back locally, and then they, they 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 found value in it. And is that a market that you knew existed, and you and you saw it, and you thought, okay, that's where the niche is. That's where we're gonna go. Or no, no, just we was we just we just we just launched and said, hey, let's just freaking launch this, put this out in some place, and see what happens. And this is the model. And all of a sudden, you know, you just see, holy smokes, it's it's this is where where, where all the downloads are, right? Wow. And this and you know, this is in the mid two thousands when the world wasn't as connected, nowhere near as connected as it is now. Yeah, this is this was pre, yeah, it was, it was pre three G. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so then, what what led you to then go back to being a venture investor? Yeah. So so the one other thing we found about it is is that it's fraud is a bitch in that space. There was a lot of fraud. So managing the fraud is is, is very very dif- difficult. How, how did the fraud uh, happen? Like, so can you give an example of a typical fraud case? 
Yeah, so, so, so people would just keep on opening multiple accounts and just using accounts and turning to each other, right? Or, or you know, and, 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 and it, gets to the, it got to the point where it's like, this, this is crazy. Because uh, the problem was the segment of the market that was really downloading the most were just a segment which is, uh, you know, a lower, lower income and, and, and would be fi- trying to find every way to scam the system to get more free minutes or, or free dollars, right? So that was one element, and then number two. After a while, I would just realize, you know what? This is all this is all race to the bottom, right? And you know, one of my big key learnings there is, uh, you know, I, I want to going forward. You you don't want to price compete. <laughs> you never want to price compete, right? Because it's always a race to the bottom. Um, so we just thought, you know what? Like I mean, after a while, this 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 doesn't this the space wasn't really a, a long term opportunity. And then, um, and then after that, so I guess you guys closed down the company, and then you went back to Rogers to yeah. build up more of their venture venture arm. Yeah, early stage stuff. Yeah, why why back to venture? Why not something else? You know, because because I just I really enjoyed it. I mean, I I think that if you take a look at business as a whole, right? Everything has to start somewhere, right? Everything has to start somewhere. Like it's any new idea, any new business, and. But the problem is, is that, you know, getting it from zero to one is so hard, right? And so being able to support that and build up that opportunity to get a company from zero to one or getting to the point where they can actually make a difference it was just intrinsically valuable to me. It's very easy to put another dollar into a large bank or into a multi-billion corporation because it's, 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 it's pretty safe. Um, and, and, but it's, but it doesn't really change. It doesn't move the needle f- for the world, right? I mean, it's it, it it doesn't it doesn't, and there's not that that much upside. There's not much change. There's not not much. I'll call it incremental true value is created, right? I just I just fundamentally believe, and this is my only opinion, where the most of the true value is created is at this very early stage, where someone says, "Okay, man, there's a big problem here, or this stuff is way overpriced," you know, for what you're getting. There's, a, there's an opportunity to come in and disrupt the market and change things. Or, you know what, there's so much suffering here or there's so much a big problem here. There's an opportunity to come up with something that's going to relieve some of that pain, right? Um, and, and that's why I sort of, it goes back to, that goes back to, you know, why I left PG in the first place, right? Just increasing share by of a, of a recognized brand or something that's by half a percent. It's it's don't get me wrong. I mean, it's really hard to do, and, and it takes a lot of skill sets and everything else. But it just wasn't something I was interested in. And in regards to early stage, I think the definition is continued. Some people use it differently. When you define early stage, do you define it by just like the financing round, or like anything below Series A, so like angel, pre-seed, seed, or is it more the stage of the company, like pre-revenue or like pre-product? So uh, now uh, using using your definition of why I stayed in early stage. I would define it as any company below ten million dollars in revenue, right? Yeah, I mean, it. I mean, I think I think in my experience is that once you get above a a, a ten million dollar run rate for a, for a company, you are almost like an adult. You can you can survive, right? Even worst case scenario, you can cut here, cut that, but you you have something that you know 
you can either get you can get the profitability pretty quickly, or, or at least EBITDA, EBITDA neutral, uh, like break even pretty quickly, right? Below that, there's still a lot of things you're trying to figure out. There's a lot. There's a lot of unknowns, right? Which you're trying to figure out to, to get to that point of stability. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, no, and I think that kind of perspective is definitely valuable to have, especially from someone like your experience. And what what comes to mind though is like you you ran a you know a VoIP company and it didn't work out, and so you went back to venture. And when I, I think in my generation, there's there's all these articles in stigma about oh yeah, you know you should just start a company early and just like you know fail fast and use that experience, and people will say oh you you're a big risk taker and like people look at it really highly. When you went back to Rogers to be a venture investor again, was that a smooth process? Did they look at it highly and say, okay, like you've started a company, you've experienced it, come on back? Yeah, you know what? I mean, the thing about it is, I mean, I, I think I think going back to Rogers is frankly two things. They needed someone. Um, I was a known. I was I was, I, was, I was a known variable, right? Because I had worked with them before. I didn't leave on bad terms. I just said, hey, I, I want to try something myself. And, and, and then when I went back, they said, hey, you know, like, I mean, the, the, the value that, the, that, that he, he got, I think, as an operator the second time uh, was very useful for, for the uh, space that they were looking at, which is more earlier stage, right? Um, and, and, and that's so, so from that perspective, from that perspective, it was... It was valuable, and, and you got to realize too that most of the most of the money we raised, we, we didn't we didn't raise twenty million dollars, right? For 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 um, for this company, right? Uh, we raised under a million bucks, right? So, and we got quite far with that million dollars, right? Before before you decide, hey guys, this is not going to work out. I think it's a different scenario where you see these people that are raising twenty million dollar rounds, fifteen million dollar rounds, whatever else, right? I, I like I understand it. But I, I think from a VC's perspective and I guess you know, from an operator's perspective, I think, I think for, for these burgeoning companies, these com- if you're thinking of doing a startup, remember that when you raise money, right, it's not your money, right? It, it is someone else's money and they believe enough in you to take the risk in you, right? So uh, I have a friend, Matt, he, um, he's with Scott VC and he always says, respect the capital. Right, and you got to respect the capital. I mean, you got to. No, no one's no one's putting like uh, you to the fire to say you have to succeed. Obviously, everyone wants to see it, but you have to at least respect the capital and 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 the people that put money into you, right? So, so, so I just I just think sometimes you know, it's it's because you know no no like I mean it's only usually the thing that it's only usually the thing that you can you can really share that's that's not sort of confidential. Whenever you see PR releases, everything else. It's always about this person raised twenty million bucks, ten million bucks, whatever else, whatever else. It and, and it's shared because you know what? That's the only thing that's not that's really public, right? That can really go public. Everything else is kind of confidential. But there's this assumption that you know what? If you're raising more money, um, a lot more money, that you know what? Oh, you're really, really successful. And that's the case. I mean, obviously, no one's gonna, no one's not gonna top up unless unless you think they think that there's an opportunity there. But you also got to realize the flip side of that is that as an entrepreneur, you have a lot more responsibility, right? Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree with you. I think 
uh, we ha- I had a few VC folks come on the podcast previously, and that's what that's I think that was that still is a hot topic of you know entrepreneurs defining success by the amount of money you raise, or people who aspire to be entrepreneurs looking at people as being successful if they've raised X amount of money, even though the company might not actually still be viable or profitable, etc. And from your perspective, then do you kind of have a kind of model of what? who should really be going for VC money and like which company should be going for VC money and which people really shouldn't? Is, that kind of, is there kind of like a checklist that you recommend people kind of run through their heads of ask yourself these questions? I, I mean, I mean the, th- the thing about it is that the whole point of software in the first place is that theoretically you get three or four really passionate people. They sit in a garage or in the basement or in their studies, you know, at night or at home, or or you know, get you know, get themselves and hold themselves out for forty eight hours for a hackathon, and the end of it because it's just, it's it's all intellectual property. It's, you should be able to build a product, build something, right? The whole point is that it, you don't have to have a manufacturing plant. You don't have to manufacture anything. the The cost of creating something is a person's time, right? So, I I think that. If you can't get to the point, personally, where you can actually build something on your own, at least in the software world, where you can actually prove sort of product acceptance or there's interest in it, then then you shouldn't be raising money, right? Because if, even if you're like a business person, right, you know nothing about programming. As a good entrepreneur, you should be good enough to find other co-founders who are very good at programming that you should be good enough at at, at, and you should believe enough in your vision, they can convince other three other people, four other people to believe in your vision as well, so they would spend you know, their spare time actually building up this product so that you can actually get to like a prototype or an alpha, right? Yeah, I think uh, I was listening to an interview by Peter Thiel who was talking about how one very kind of underlooked skill set a founder must have is the ability to like, storytell and convince people to join that entrepreneur's company because he was talking about uh, the founders of Google and he's like, yeah, like they needed to tell people that we're trying to start this company and sell them on this vision without yeah. having anything. So, so I always tell like, um, I always tell CEOs or, or up and coming CEOs or people that want to be CEOs, right? There's, there's two things. Um, number one, your job as a CEO, your primary job is to sell, right? You know, you're always selling to customers, selling to investors, or selling to your people, right? Your employees, the people that are in your organization motivating, right? That is your primary job. I mean, I mean, and if you if you don't want to be doing that, you shouldn't be a CEO, okay? Because that is so, so important. You can still be a founder, but you shouldn't be the CEO. And, and the, the, second, the second piece... Um, you have to realize as a CEO is that, and this is, I think, what Elon Musk said, said is that, you know, a, being a CEO is really, really hard because shit always rises to the top, right? I mean, a CEO is always dealing with the biggest problem at that point in time, right? And, and, and like, in that big problem, like, most people can't even realize how big it is, right? But you got to, you the CEO has to deal with it, right? So... If you can't deal with shit, <laughs> you know, then then probably the CEO is not a good job for you. 
so for you 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 left that invest investing world again now the second time to be an operator and you chose the cfo path so you became kind of a full-time cfo for three separate startups like tribe hr cure talent and um touch bistro as well yeah yeah so so i sort of got to that is like so um uh, Rogers had decided to, to move their, their their VC group down to the valley, uh, down to this California, and due to personal reasons, uh, I couldn't I couldn't go down, right? So I said, you know what, thanks. I I just go around in Toronto because of personal reasons. Uh, so I'm thinking, oh man, what am I gonna do now? <laughs> you know, because like, I mean, it's not it's not like there's hundreds of VC jobs, right? And so I thought, okay, well, well. Where can I best apply my skills, and, and where is the the biggest need, right? And what, what I found was that, um, at least when I was dealing with other startups, like most of the time, these startups see that you know you've got someone who can build a really good product and, and and can sell pretty well, right? But what comes into financials and KPIs and metrics, probably the last time they saw a financial statement or really understood it, it was when. They were doing their MBA if they did an MBA, or that which was like probably ten years ago, right? So, so, so it's it's just not a skill set that they have, or they should be focusing on, because I don't know how much it moves the needle, and and but that translates into just having lower visibility, because you know sometimes you don't even know what you're tracking for and why it's important, right? So the one element is that whenever I saw I spoke to early stage uh, startups is. You know, product's great, market's interesting, you know, um, good salespeople. You look at all the numbers and it's like, it's a mess. It's just, it's just a mess, right? So you'd have to go through, take a look at it and do your own analysis and try to figure out what, okay, what, what are the real numbers, right? This is when you were an investor. This was an investor, right? And even later stage companies, right? And then the second piece is, number one, number one is just understanding, I guess, the numbers and, and, and guiding the company from a, from investors and from a, a metrics-based approach. And the second piece is that even being able to put in and define the correct infrastructure so you can get those numbers, right? I mean, you know, you, know, you, you talk to most people, right? Uh, maybe they came out of a, a mid-sized company or they were someplace else. All the accounting is basically all done for them, right? I mean, it's a, it happens in the background. You, you you send an invoice someplace, or you or you, or you create an invoice. All you don't even see that piece, right? It just sort of magically happens in the background, right? And and all of a sudden you get your your numbers, right? You get all these KPIs. Yeah, and you see, go, okay, 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 now I'm, I'm going to analyze all yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not going to analyze this, but it. But some all of a sudden you get your report, and it's done, right? But when you're doing a startup, like that's not there, right? I mean, it's 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 not there. Like you have to build that, and you have to even when you go to a bookkeeper, right? They'll, 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 they'll code your transactions in the right area, but they're still not going to tell you what it means. They're not going to tell you where to code it. Like, you have to tell them what, what it is. They're not going to tell you the place, right place to accrue it. You know, the, um, if, if you're sending an invoice, um, they're not going to chase after that customer if they're not paying, right? And let's say you're in a cash crunch, they're not going to tell you Okay, we'll pay this person first, and let's pay for this person second. Or you know what? They're not going to go out to that 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 supplier and say, "Hey, sorry, ma'am, we're a bit of a cash crunch. Let's I need to renegotiate my payment terms." Right? I mean, these are, these are all things that you had to do when you were in the, the CFO role. 
No, I mean, well, most most of it, you know what, I would say most of it is the collection side. I mean, it's just like, you know, like you, 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 you send the invoice out and then all of a sudden, some people pay, some people don't, but you got to, it, it's just a fundamental part of business, right? Yeah, it's, you got to get the cash in. You got to get the cash in, right? Yeah. You got to get the cash in. And so what what do you think, um, like, when people first you know, do, like, a finance role at a startup or when you're creating that kind of role, like, what, what's the thing that matters the most? And what are the things that people focus on that really should be ignored? So I mean, that, like, I mean, in the end, I mean, there's there's two things to start up. One 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 is building building a, a product. It doesn't even have to be a great product that people will buy, right? And number two is selling it. <laughs> like like those those are the that's the core purpose of a business, right? Like frankly, everything else is important, but it, it's 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 not the core of the business. Everything else is 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 important, but it's it has to be. It's like a, it's a table stakes, but it's not. Gonna move the needle for you, right? You're moving your needle is, is how do I prove that product, you know? And and how do I how do I how do I sell it and how do I get the right people? How do I acquire a customer, right? Um, so that's what as founders you should be focused on the most. And that was my belief is that you know what? So if you can have someone else like a fractional CFO or COO to go through and help you with all the other stuff at that point in time, because it's gonna be still pretty small. You're not doing a crap load of stuff. Uh, and and it, and it's like a cost effective for you. Then that's what you should be doing, right? Because for you to be able to actually do the sales and actually do the the product, you need to have visibility into your business. And you also mentioned about how your role of corporate is actually putting in systematic infrastructure, actually making the operations efficient, effective. You know, are the right numbers coming in? Are, are the right forms going out? And there's all these tools now that are out there that can actually aid a lot of startup do you have kind of go to like a go-to toolkit of these are the softwares i use yeah you know i mean i i think so at early stages it, it, it goes across the board i mean like what you know at the, at the um usually what happens with the, you know it's either obviously quickbooks or or it's or it's uh you know zero as your accounting platform and then if you go sort of uh Downstream, or I'll call it upstream, I guess, in terms of invoicing of your SaaS-based business, then there's no stuff like Cheddargetter or Chargebee. You know, uh, they're all they're all the same. And then and then you know, going up source more. Most people use you know, use Salesforce. And then some people just uh, use some sort of platform for for managing uh, demand gen, right? Um, but those are the core systems that you really need. And would you say then, when you are actually being the CFO of these startups, do most of your time go into building out the infrastructure, or is it more just? I know, most of your time goes up. into defining the infrastructure. It's it's mm -hmm. like it's like you know what I mean. It's like what I say to to a lot of people is that every software is not going to solve your problem unless you know how to configure the software. Just like you know, you have Excel. You can. Be the best person at building on an Excel model, right? Uh, but if the algorithm is wrong and doesn't actually reflect the key drivers and levers of your business, it's just sort of pointless, right? Garbage in, garbage out. It's just same, same with other other things, right? You know, well, you can have all the software and it can have all these bells and whistles, but you you have to, to configure it and design it in the right way so that it actually is meaningful to your business. Do you try to keep it? keep it flexible enough so that when, if a business model does evolve or change dramatically that it can tailor to it? Or do you just find that you do it so it fits the current business model and if it 
does completely shift and you just create a new infrastructure for it? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about it, the theory is that, you know, as, as if you have a good piece of software, as your business revol- evolves, it's pretty easy to reconfigure, right? That's, that's, that's the theory around it, if you have a good piece of software. Got it. And so you're, you were more, so right now you're a fractional CFO, but in the beginning you were, it seems like you were more of a full-time, full-time CFO of a startup like one at a time instead of uh, no, four at once. No, no, no. I was, well, you know, like, like any company, you know, yeah. it, it takes a while to build up your clientele, right? Mm. So one for, I was a little over six months and I got my second client and everything else. So, so okay. I was always a fractional CFO, okay. but it takes a while to, you know, you don't, you don't, it's not like you start off your company at all. So, hey, I've got freaking 20, 20, 20 customers. Great. I'm done. You know, well, you're, you're telling me that all the startups didn't, you know, like beg for you and say, come on, come on, Jason, <laughs> yeah, can I, you be a CFO for us? Yeah, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, so you started being a CFO and then you, you went back to being an investor too, right? You went to Gibraltar and then. You were an investor, and then you came back. Yeah, out to yeah, 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 yeah. What? Why? Why the third time? Is it third time's a charm? I think or? third time's a charm. Well, you know what I mean. I think I think I was. So, so, I know it's a lot of ping ponging. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I think I think uh, going back to the investor side, I just um, I just realized I could, I could move the needle more. As 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 uh, I, I, I you know what got going back to the investor side, um, I just realized I, I enjoyed the work. As a CFO, more than I, than than I, I enjoyed the work as a as, as an investor, um, just because you know what. As an investor, you only have so much you can do to move the needle for your customer uh, for your for your for your for your investments, right? You can only like I mean, there's only so much you can do. I mean, your 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 focus is to you know, manage your portfolio, right? So and you only have so much time. And you got to raise your next fund and all this other stuff, and and so you can only do so much for your for your uh, f- for your investments. And what I found that as as a as a CFO or part time CFO, I could do a lot more to move the needle and get a company from zero to one than I could as a as an investor. So my my original thought was, you know. The reason why I got back to investing is I thought, hey, you know what? I'm doing the CFO stuff. I, I, wow, I can see that, you know what? When I'm involved, I can actually help move the needle. I mean, I can actually see a change in terms of the numbers and, and the discipline and, and being able to actually push everything to the, to the top to the right. Um, and I thought, hey, well, man, if I can do this, and then maybe, well, what's the, what's the next thing? That, what's another thing that people really need? They need capital, right? So can I sort of merge this knowledge, this ability, with, and then be able to deploy capital against it to to be able to, to move these companies to, to, uh, to the top and to the right, and and that was the original concept. Well, why I got back into in, into into uh, VC, right? And the idea behind it was that my differentiation. I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm an operating VC, right? The goal was hopefully, yeah, maybe my focus would be, let's see if I can get in there, make the investment, and still my value add would be to to do the CFO work for these companies, right? Um, to, to, to try to, you know, change the, cha- change, change the probabilities of, su- of success. But then I realized that it's, 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 it's tough to do because you only have so many hours in the day, right? And, and, and so when, when you, sorry, um, I know you wanted to say something else, but I, w- I was really curious. Uh, when you said it was tough to do because there's only so many hours in the day, was it not possible to kind of offload, okay, well, 
uh, we already invested in these portfolio companies. I'm going to work on them and ask a different venture partner to screen more companies, do more relationship building. Yeah, you can, but you don't realize that. I mean, you only have you know there's a management fee to help you cover your costs when you're going through. You don't have so much management fee, right? You, it's not like you're 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 unlimited resources, right? And so 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 you 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 just uh, you got to be sort of doing everything. Like a, like a VC is a is an entrepreneur themselves, right? And they've got to manage everything and build everything, right? And then I I just I just I think I just found that you know. Um, I. You just couldn't. It's, it was that was a difficult model to, to execute against at scale. Was there kind of an there was there a specific inflection point when where you realized I want to go back to being a CFO? Um, yeah, so so I, I think I decided you know what like everything else, um, VC how it has its own life cycle. You know, usually the model is for a ten year fund you spend you know, whatever, how much time you spend raising the fund, and then within the first three to four years, you deploy against that, right? And then at that point in time, uh, you raise fund two. Um, so I, we were at the point where there was a decision, a decision whether we we're going to raise fund two or not, and I said, you know what? Uh, I, I think that, you know what, at least from, from, from my personal perspective, I, I would find more value, and I can... Help company more companies more as just purely a, a fractional CFO, so that was a route I wanted to take because I didn't want to go back and you know you, well you can't just go back and promise to new LPs yeah I'm here and then you know just leave a year after right and I think yeah like that that comes back to the idea of even for you, know, you you talked about how for entrepreneurs you know when you when you get venture funding it's not your money. It's, it's not your money. Else. Yeah, yeah, it's someone else's money, and yeah. you, you have you should you have responsibility to do what's right for your for your LPs. You know. Yeah. No. Totally. And so right now, the, as a as a fractional CFO, do you do you have those moments though where you think back to do you have that urge of should I go back to be a VC for the fourth no, time? No. Or? No. No. I mean, I think I think I've finally learned my lesson. You, you have conviction. I have <laughs> conviction. I have conviction. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and so as we kind of hit up on like the final legs of our interview, for you personally, then from what you've experienced so far, being involved in so many different aspects of the startup world, and this doesn't have to be relatively focused on the startup tech world necessarily, but is there an aspect where you feel that you have a belief that is against conventional wisdom, whatever that conventional wisdom might be? Yeah, you know what I mean. Discussed going through this, this, this. I mean, the the, the whole the whole model. Of this, I I think of the VC world, the investment world, is push hard, go fast, own the friggin' market, and then dominate, and then that's how you get your highest multiple, right? Because if you have a very very fast growth curve and a large market, you know, and and your top line is going away quickly, then then that's how you, you you get the big returns, right? But I mean, I, I think that that's sort of the, the 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 top line. But you know, never underestimate the power of cash flow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And and I think sometimes you need to go slow to go fast, right? 
I think sometimes it's better to slow down your investment in people or whatever else or areas of focus. Figure out what works, what's working really well, then lean in. But but sometimes I think I think I think generally people are just so focused. I got I got to get to this specific growth rate um, so so quickly that that they're just you know trying everything across the board to figure out what works right and and I think I think half of that is just as I said before you know it's just you don't have that same visibility into your business to figure out what is working what's not working and where you got to focus on and and and, and to, to, to be more of a sniper than this shotgun approach and that's why you need someone to help you get to that visibility. And I think that uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful uh, belief right there. And I think there are similar, you know, I can see that kind of analogy in like other forms of investing as well. Like one, one person that pops to mind is Stan Drucken Miller, the famed hedge fund manager of Duquesne, where you know, he talks about how even him as an investor, he believes that his What's important for him is to actually know when he's hot and know when he's cold. And when he's cold, it's about being slow and actually being very methodical and try to think more and take some more free time. And yeah. Focus on where do I focus on? And when he's hot, that's when you double down and really go hard with conviction in something. And yeah, no, I think that's, that's definitely uh, a great sentiment to hold for any startup entrepreneur. And so with time winding down, um, Jason, thanks so much for coming that, on the podcast and sharing your story with me and my audience. Really appreciate it and you know, if there are some people in my audience who are startups and startup founders and who want to engage in your services where can people find you learn more about you yeah just start email me I'm actually I actually I, I, I'll work through networks so I don't I don't I don't advertise but my email address is Jason at jasonzan.com so just email me there all right great thanks for coming on the podcast Jason okay So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way and included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.